Well, good morning to you again. How are you guys doing? Okay. (laughs) Well, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're looking at verses 17 through 27. So, if you're not there, you can open your Bibles to that section of Scripture. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, you can turn to page 846, and that'll bring you to Mark chapter 10. On the inside of our bulletins, on the left-hand side is an outline that you can use to follow along. We're actually only going to cover point one this morning, so this will be another two-part sermon, so that means you'll have to come back next week to get the full story. Okay? I entitled this message, Salvation, With Man It Is Impossible. With Man It Is Impossible. Now, when you think about man's achievements in history, they are many and great. Many and great. I was just thinking about uh, our ability to put a man on the moon in 1969. I know some people think it was all staged in some uh, studio somewhere and we weren't weren't really there, but I think we were there. I think we actually walked on the moon. But when we did that, it was a great time for our country. We were in a race with Russia to beat them there. And and it it just gave people a sense that we can do anything. I mean, we can take a man from this globe and put him on the planet that we look at every night. In fact, you remember the astronaut? He he stepped off and he he said that famous line, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Right? In other words, the idea is, man, this is going to open up so many doors to us. In fact, just the other day, I, I heard about a, a cure. Now, it's not has not been tested on many people, but there was a cure for leukemia. They, they, what they did, this is amazing to me, that, that man is able to invent these things, but they took white blood cells from these patients, and then they used cells from HIV cells. Now, you would think that's weird, but... I guess these are the kind that are safe. They put those together. They injected it back into them. And two of the people were completely cured of a common form of leukemia. Completely cured. It's been a year now. The third has a 70% cure rate. 70% effectiveness, that is. So they're not sure it's going to work on everybody, but it's hopeful. And it's opening up the possibilities that there might be other ways to apply this science to other forms of cancer. Pretty exciting stuff. Pretty exciting stuff. Many believe, just based on all the stuff that we can do and have done, that humanity can overcome any of the obstacles that are in their way. If you just give them enough time and enough resources to study and develop a solution. And in our material world, to some degree, you have to say that has been true. Enough time, enough resources, enough brain power, enough investment we have overcome many of the obstacles that face humanity. But in the spiritual realm, humanity's greatest obstacle is sin. It is sin. It entered into our human history at the very beginning, and it has been wreaking havoc, enslaving hearts, and condemning souls to eternal death ever since its inception. Sin is a much greater problem for mankind than most realize or are willing to admit. And the deceitfulness of sin has led people to believe that sin and even its ultimate consequences can somehow be dealt with 
or eradicated through human effort alone. But the truth, beloved, is completely opposite of that fairy tale. So, let's look at the text this morning. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. We'll just be dealing with the first part of it, but we'll read the entire text so we understand the the story here. Follow along with me. And as he was setting out on his journey, that is Jesus, this journey, just by way of reminder, is to Jerusalem to die. Okay? So this is not a vacation. He's on his way to be crucified. As he is setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So this morning we will begin a study, or begin to study two salvation truths. These are in your outline. Two salvation truths that we must embrace in order to inherit eternal life and give glory to God. The glory that He is worthy of, the glory He deserves, the glory, as I will talk about later, we attempt to steal. We attempt to steal. The message today is actually kind of a part two, a big part two to last week's message. So if you weren't here, I would encourage you to get online and maybe download that message. That was in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. And in that text, Jesus had just finished teaching everyone there a very important lesson, explaining to them that entrance into the kingdom of God is only for childlike people. Only. There is no other way. Completely, and we talked about this last week, completely dependent on God and willing to receive their kingdom citizenship as a gift. As a gift. Because like a child, they recognize their neediness and they have absolutely no way or means of securing it for themselves. Okay? So that's the text right before this text we just read. In stark contrast to this childlike dependence and neediness and reception is this man in Mark 10:17, who apparently believes that entrance into the kingdom of God, eternal life, salvation, is somehow achievable through sheer human effort and good work, hard work. It is important to note, by the way, that he wasn't alone 
in that view. He didn't share that by himself. It was shared by many of the religious people of the day, including Jesus' disciples, as we will see as we get further along in the text. Unfortunately, this erroneous or wrong thinking of first century Judaism, and it goes something like this, good works or obedience to the law equals personal righteousness equals entrance into God's righteous kingdom. That's the erroneous view. Good works, obedience to the law, equals personal righteousness, equals entrance into God's righteous kingdom. Sometimes this is referred to as a works-based righteousness. A works-based righteousness. This view, sadly, has not disappeared. And it continues to dominate people's thinking even in the 21st century. Making these ancient words that we read here in Mark, very relevant for this group, for me and for you today. So the first point we're going to look at and spend some time on, because I didn't want to move too quickly through this subject, and it's in your outline, is external compliance to the law of God will never bring salvation. And I'm going to hope that I can back that up through God's Word. External compliance to the law of God will never bring salvation. The main problem with the teaching that somehow we can earn a righteous standing with God and therefore access to His holy and perfect kingdom through our good works or by outwardly keeping God's law is a cataclysmic failure. That means really big, really bad. A cataclysmic failure to recognize what I talked about in the intro. Humanity's biggest problem. Our inherited sin nature. Now, this is where people might check out on me, and I hope you won't do that. They'll start to say, yeah, listen, pastor, I've heard all this before, the whole sin thing. We're sinners, okay? Tell me something I don't already know. I hope, that's, I hope you're at least agreeing that far and you're not out there saying, hey, I'm not a sinner, I don't even know what he's talking about. But I am convinced that people don't fully understand what they so easily and readily acknowledge. I'm convinced they don't. I base that on the fact that the majority of people who I have asked this question, if you were standing before God today, and hypothetically he were to ask you, son, daughter, or Man, woman, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? And the majority of the time, the answer has something to do with, I do good things, or I haven't done any really bad things, or it's a combination of the two. I don't kill people, and I'm a pretty good guy. That tells me they, and these same people will acknowledge that, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. But, I do good things, and I've never been locked up. Okay. And that is their basis before God for why He should let them into His perfect, holy, righteous, sinless kingdom. It is a mistake, beloved, just thinking through this, to identify a sinner only by what they do, like bad things, instead of by 
what they are. An inherited, sinful nature. So for instance, a sinner is not a sinner just because that sinner acts out and does bad things. A sinner is a sinner because at his core, he is messed up. She is messed up. She or he has inherited something that they didn't want from mom and dad because mom and dad inherited it from their mom and dad and so forth all the way back to the very first parents who sinned in the garden, Adam and Eve. And as a result, everyone is born with a sin nature and that is why they are sinners. The fact that they act that out just proves their nature. This is why Jesus' focus when He shows up on the scene is to change from the external focus to the internal focus. And you might remember this because we were in this text a little while ago. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. You can flip back to the left or you can just follow along on the screen. Here's what Jesus says to these Pharisees, religious leaders, who were so intent on making sure there was external compliance with the law. He says, for from within, from within, what is that, Jesus? What do you mean by within? Just in case you're not sure, out of the heart of man. There's no confusing that. There's no several interpretations. This is clear. For from within, out of the heart of man, what, Jesus? Good things and butterflies come. No. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from where? Within. And they defile a person. Jesus said similar words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. It's the Gospel before Mark. Matthew 5, 27. You're familiar with these passages probably, or maybe you've never heard them. Either way, they're worthy of saying again. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's right. And we haven't. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent... What is lustful intent? Where does that come from? Oh, that's right. The heart. Whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. Where? Outwardly? No, he hasn't actually gone through with the act. But in his mind and in his heart, he's going through the act. And so the Lord says he's committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus continues to change the conversation from outward compliance to inward obedience, which these men and women don't have. Why? Because inwardly their nature is sinful. The human sinful heart, beloved, is no friend to humanity. It's no friend. But a continual fountain of poison and evil that defiles or corrupts us before a holy and perfect God. 
A defiled person, as he said in Mark chapter 7, verse 23, is not a righteous person. These evil things that come flowing out, bubbling out from within, defile a person. You cannot be defiled and righteous at the same time. Our romanticized view of humanity is contrary, beloved, sadly, to the Word of God. And this is what I mean. We say things like, people are generally good. And they have good hearts. And there are a few bad apples, a few bad people out there. That's what we say. But what if we could see the secret thoughts and desires of humanity like God does? By the way, I would never wish that. I'd rather not know, actually. You know, I, I'd rather not know because I don't know how God does it, actually. I don't know how he sees all the vile and wickedness because I know it in my own heart. I don't know how he sees it multiplied by billions and doesn't just put us down. The only reason it could be is because of his mercy and his love and his compassion and this grand and glorious plan he has to glorify himself from saving those very people or by saving those very people. What if our society was no longer restrained by laws and the consequences of breaking them? Now, the police know the answer to that question. Okay? But I was thinking that the second I said that, probably, at least a few of you would think, yeah, but you're talking about bad people. Okay? Bad people would break the law if there was no law. Bad people would go out and loot the streets if there was no law. That's interesting that you would say that. That just goes to show the deceptiveness of your own heart. London, have you been seeing all these riots taking place in the streets? Just read an article this morning. The psychologists don't know what to do with this. Why? Because some of the people they're arresting have always been law-abiding citizens. See, we just want to chalk that up and say, oh yeah, a bunch of punk teenagers with bad moms and dads, little rebels, just lock those guys up and let them rot. That's how we deal with it. But the reality is, yeah, there's those guys out there. But there's also law-abiding citizens, people who have never stolen, well, as far as we know, never been caught. People who obey the law, generally pay their taxes, so on and so forth, taking TV sets, taking prescriptions, taking water, they busted a guy for stealing water. And they said, why did you do it? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. That's what my son used to say a long time ago. Why did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I know. You sinner, I know why you did it. <laughs> See, this is the thing. Put into the right circumstances, the right conditions, beloved. You might do similar things. And then people say, oh, it's a mob mentality. They were just caught up with the mob. Okay? Well, the same psychologists that are struggling trying to figure out, because they will not admit that people are sinners, the same people that are struggling to figure out why people, good, upstanding people, would steal a bottle of water, are the same people saying that their studies show that mob mentality does not cause them to do that. That's, that's what the article said. In other words, they don't go brainless and mindless in the midst of the chaos. 
they willfully choose to disobey the law. And if that was true, if it was true that, listen, they're not even responsible, they just got caught up in all the fun that was going on. If you put Jesus in that same mob, would he have stolen water and TV sets? And of course you know the answer. Well, no! Why? Well, Jeremy, he was perfect. All right, let me just redefine that word for a second. Let's say it this way. He was sinless. He was without sin. His nature was uncorrupted. But ours is. Ours is, beloved. Paul says it this way. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Now here... He begins by talking, just to get some context, in verse 1. He's talking about what advantage, in the scheme of things, does a Jew have? What are the advantages of being a Jew? And there are many, he says. But then he gets down to verse 9. And he says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? When he says we Jews, Paul was a Jew. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged, we have already made it clear, according to the Scriptures, that all, both Jews and non-Jews, they refer to non-Jews as Greeks, that would be us, Gentiles, both Jews and non-Jews are under sin, as it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament, none is righteous. No, not one. Now, I don't, I don't know how you walk away from a passage like that and still want to hold on to some type of personal righteousness. You just have to flat out resist or ignore what God has already said. External performance like outward obedience to the law is no irrefutable, I can't even say the word, irrefutable proof of eternal righteousness. In other words... You can be in compliance with the law, beloved. That does not necessarily prove anything about what is going on inside. How do I know that from the Word of God? Matthew 23, 28. This is what Jesus says. Speaking, and this is what's important. He's speaking to religious leaders who made it their very life's work to obey the law. Okay? This is what they did 24-7. And he says, you outwardly appear righteous. What does that mean? You outwardly comply with the law. You dot your I's, you cross your T's, you go above and beyond even what the law of God demands. You appear righteous to others. To others you do, because they can't see inside your heart. But within, Jesus can see in, Within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Religious leaders were focused heavily on the law and law keeping, but neglected the real problem, beloved, their sinful hearts. They were early, they were the early form of legalistic Christianity. Legalistic Christianity. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that at the end. External righteous acts and an internal righteous nature are two very different things. 
Two very different things. Sinners have a sinful nature, but some of them work harder at hiding it than others. And some just let it all hang out. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now let's look back at the text. See if we can prove all this from the text, but that was good background for us. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Just pick it up in 17 where he says, Good teacher, as he addresses him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, do this, do that, and do this. No, he didn't do that. He says, he stops and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Wait a minute here. What is up with Jesus? This seems strange. Why is he stopping to draw attention to this man's sincere, kind, and respectable tribute to Jesus by simply saying, good teacher? Jesus, why can't you just let that go? What's the big deal? Just answer the man's question. He was being nice to you. What's your hang-up? Well, like I said, when I hear people throw around the word sinner, they don't necessarily understand all that it means. And so it is with the word good. So it is with the word good. We say things like this. He's good. She's good. They have a good heart. Right? He's good. She's good. They have a good heart. I'm good. You're good. We throw it around. But Jesus now wants this man to stop and think. Otherwise, why draw attention to it? He wants him to stop and think about exactly how he is defining or using the word good. And so he says, listen, God alone is truly good. Alone. He shares it with no one else. So he is exactly the only standard by which anyone can measure true goodness. In God, beloved, there is no wicked way. Amen? There is no evil thought. No, not one. He is righteous. He is holy. He is perfect. He is entirely Without sin, He is indeed good. And if God were good like you and I are good, then He certainly wouldn't be worth following or worshiping. One writer says, Jesus intimates or hints at this, hints at something, that the thoughtless use of the word good in addressing one that He simply regards as a human teacher... He doesn't see anything more in this man. He's just a good teacher. The thoughtless use of good, uh, as he applies it to him, is an indicator of the man's superficial view of goodness. And that's why Jesus stops and asks him to reflect. The man's understanding, beloved, of good is critical. If the man thinks himself to be good, if he casually tosses the word around, then he will not see his desperate neediness. Desperate neediness as a sinner. He will not see his absence of eternal righteousness And he will surely not receive the kingdom of God like a dependent, helpless child. 
but will wrongly believe that he is on his way to achieving entrance into that kingdom by his good efforts, his good works, his ability to outwardly comply with the good law. Remember Mark 10.15. And I think it's important. And this is what happens. We step into the Bible many times and we read sections and we rip them out. But then we miss something because that section was between sections. This takes place right after Mark 10.13-16. And he made it very clear. No one will enter into the kingdom of God unless he receives it. As a child. So, look back at the text. Mark 10.19 Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The Master, one writer says, knew very well, that is Jesus, that if this inquirer, this man, was going to be saved... He had to be confronted with the absolute standard of goodness. Namely, the perfect law given by the perfect one, God. Let me say it another way. Jesus' word should not have brought him comfort. If he understood that he was a sinner internally, if he understood there is only one good, God, if he understood the high demand of Scripture and His law. That it was more than just outward compliance, but it was a heart that desired even to do those things. It was a heart that did not lust. It didn't just not commit adultery. It wouldn't even lust. If He understood all those things, they should have challenged Him. They should have brought Him low. They should have made Him come to a place where He would say, then who in the world can do that? It's got to be easier. Jesus here, as I said, paused to address the man's superficial use of good and then gave him God's uncompromising law so that the man might recognize his inherent sinfulness and throw himself on the mercy of God as a condemned man, just like the tax collector. And maybe you've heard this story before, but it is worth hearing again. Luke 18, verse 9, he says, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the third gospel. He also told this parable, that is Jesus, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. See, that's the issue. That's the issue, beloved. They trusted. Their confidence was in their ability to comply with God's law. Beyond that, they started to treat others with contempt. They looked down upon those who could not comply perfectly with God's law, who did not meet their standards. So, he tells them this parable. He tells them this story to communicate a truth. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. This is the model of righteousness in their culture. And the other a tax collector. This is the one that is considered the lowest in their culture. Scum of their culture. And we won't get into all that and and just know that a tax collector was looked down upon. They'd spit on them when they walked by them. Verse 11, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Oh, that is disgusting. Listen, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. You know what he's saying? I do more than what the law demands. I go above and beyond. I'm not a 100% law keeper. I'm a 110% law keeper. Thank you very much. Verse 13, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. That shows remorse. Saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. I got nothing. Jesus says, I tell you this man, the tax collector, This man went down to his house justified. Seen as right with God. Rather than the other, the Pharisee. You don't understand how shocking those words were. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself, he will be exalted. But look back at the text. Look at this this man. Jesus says, you know the commandments, keep them. Mark 10, verse 20. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, the man did not respond with a confession of sin and a cry for mercy. He did not respond that way like the tax collector. Instead, that he, ins- he insisted that he had been in compliance with God's law from his youth. Now, listen, I, I have changed something about the way I approach this text after studying it. Uh, more this week. I used to say, I used to say that this man was delusional or flat out lying. But there actually is no reason from the text to support that idea. Instead, that was really my own experiences with God's law being imposed on this man because I haven't kept the law since I was a youth. I certainly have lied. And the whole honor your father and mother, are you kidding me? I haven't done that. So I used to think, this guy is full of it. Which is a way of saying he's lying. But guess what? When we look at the text, Jesus did not challenge his statement. He didn't challenge it. He could have easily have said, You hypocrite, you liar. You're speaking false things right now. We know that Jesus could look and see inside of a man's heart. Mark chapter 2, verse 8. He knew what people were thinking. He knew what they were reasoning. But He doesn't say that. In fact, the text says that He loved him. He loved this man. Verse 21. But Jesus did say that he lacked one thing. So, here's the man. I have kept these from my youth. You know what? You and I have a hard time relating to that. But you've got to understand, in Judaism, from the time that they were young and they were officially declared a man, there were so many rules, so many regulations. They didn't have... Uh, PlayStation and movies and television and the Internet and Facebook. Listen, you're a kid and you have the law of God and that's pretty much it and then you help the farmly 
family, wow, that's a mix of words, the family farm, okay? You work in the family business. That's what you did as a kid. You knew the law. You were taught to memorize the law. It was you and the law. You went to sleep with the law. You woke up with the law. Your parents were telling you to keep the law. Friends were telling you to keep the law, encouraging you to keep the law. All around you was this encouragement to keep the law. So for us, it's hard. We don't relate to this. But for someone to say he's kept it from his youth, I believe him. Externally. So then Jesus says, hey, listen. I love you. He doesn't say that, but the text says he loved him. He says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. The word translated lack, beloved, also means to fall short, to suffer need, or to be in want. To fall short, to suffer need, or to be in want. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Romans 3.23, where Paul says, all have sinned and fall short. Same word. Of the glory of God. Wait a minute. Why has this guy fallen short according to Jesus? Why is he in want? Why does he suffer need? Why does he still need something in order to enter the kingdom of God? He had faithfully, according to the text, kept the law, at least outwardly. Is he righteous or isn't he? If he was righteous, beloved, then why would he still be lacking something? Why is he still in need? If he really were righteous, listen, this is a righteous kingdom. It is for righteous people. If this man who complied with the law was truly righteous, huh? then why is Jesus, why didn't Jesus say this? Oh, you've kept it from your youth. Well done. Go your way. I'll see you in the kingdom. Why didn't he say that? And if, if this man isn't truly righteous, then how do we explain his full, faithful compliance with God's law outwardly? How do we explain that? Well, I would explain it the same way the Apostle Paul does. Because Paul makes reference to Jews and their zealousness for the law in Romans chapter 10. If you want to turn there, you can. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 10, page 946 in those church Bibles, if you want to see this. He says here, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Who are the them? You can look it up later, write it down. It is the Jewish nation. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. That's the context. He's speaking about Israel. He says, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, the Jewish people, is that they might or that they may be saved. Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, a passion for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But they won't submit to Christ. They won't surrender to Him as Master, as King, as Lord, as Savior. 
They won't come under Him. They won't recognize their need. They will not receive the kingdom as children. And therefore, they seek to establish their own righteousness according to the law. The man coming to Jesus, by the way, beloved, just something I will point out, was not an atheist. Right? We're all in agreement. This man who comes to Jesus, he was not an atheist. He was not opposed to religion. He was very religious. He was not unconcerned about eternal things. How do I inherit eternal life? He did not outright reject the written commands of God, but guess what? None of that ultimately put him in eternally in an eternally better position than the atheist or rebel who refuses to submit to God at all. It didn't put him in a better position. He had still fallen short. He was still lacking. He was still in need. Why? Because he was seeking to establish his own righteousness through law-keeping. But external righteousness is not internal righteousness. It is not. The truth is an unrighteous heart, a sinful heart, a polluted heart with a strong will, consistent reinforcement, severe consequences, and enough restraints and safeguards in place can outwardly comply with the law of God. Evident by the fact that he did. They can. Listen, you want me to prove this to you? Super strict and constantly monitoring parents and the children they are able to produce are an illustration of this. What do I mean? If you GPS your kid and monitor all of his behavior and watch him 24-7, and you let him know that he will die if he disobeys you even in the smallest matter or experience death-like existence, you can get kids to comply. Now, some are just so rebellious, they'll just they'll take it to you, you know, and then you've got a good fight on your hands. But you can get many children to comply outwardly with all your rules and all of your laws. And then the children leave. Go off to college. And they're no longer underneath your, your rule. All of your control measures. All of the circumstances. And they flip out. Why did that happen? Because all the while, there's a good chance... That if you are only talking to the external behavior, only controlling the external behavior, only watching the external behavior, yes, you can get compliance. But all the while, inside they're like, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. And I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. But as soon as I get out of here, I'm doing what I want to do. No change. No real change. Listen, Paul understood what it meant to pursue righteousness through law-keeping. He understood it well. But when he encountered the grace of God, his life was changed forever. One more passage here, Philippians 3, well, maybe a few more. Philippians 3, page 981, if you're using those blue Bibles, we'll look at verses 2 through 9. Paul now writes about these 
Judaizers or these Jews who were desiring to put Christians back under the law in order to obtain a righteous standing with God, including the necessity to be circumcised, as was required by Judaism. And this is how Paul refers to the situation. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about these religious Jews. For we are the circumcision, he says. And he's not talking about physical circumcision, but he's talking about the heart that has been circumcised because a new heart has been planted inside of them and the old flesh has been removed by the power of God in His grace. He says, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, you guys want to put confidence in the flesh? Okay, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in other words, his ability to accomplish something before God so that God will say, well done, come on in. You did good, boy. He says, you know what? then I have a bigger reason than you. Here's why. Here's my credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. You know what that means? Baby, my life's work was keeping the law. That's what he's saying. In fact, he goes on to say, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You think Paul was lying? He wasn't lying. Just like this man who said, I've kept all of those from my youth, so Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees. I worked overtime, baby. And then he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. Trash. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, and here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. It's external. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Beloved, Paul says it another way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. He says it this way. I do not nullify the grace of God. That means count it worthless. Set it aside. Put a void sticker on it. I don't do that. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I don't know how much clearer you can be. Paul is saying, listen guys, if I could obtain the righteousness that I need, a righteous heart, through working my way through the flesh to keep the law, if I could do that, then Jesus wasted His time. Why do you have to come and die? I've kept the law. And remember, this was a man who was blameless in keeping the law. He's saying, listen, if that was enough, then I don't need Jesus. But I will not do that. I will not set aside that grace, that gift of God, without which I would be 
lacking something, something critical. I would be in need and in want. I would still be a sinner in my heart, condemned before God, regardless of all the good stuff that I have done with my hands. What God's righteous law should show us in the reality, in reality is our sinful hearts. That's what it should show us. His law is not a challenge that He sets before us to say, achieve it, baby. Come on. You guys can go to the moon. You can do this. You can handle this law. No. He gives the law to reveal like a mirror how messed up we are. Our hearts are corrupted from within. That's why he says in Galatians 3.24, the law is a tutor. And here's what it's teaching you. It's teaching you, go to Christ. Flee. He's your only hope. Sin blinds people, though, to the real condition that they have, and it even encourages them to continue in their futile attempts to earn God's favor by keeping His law. Listen, Satan doesn't care if you're a rebel or you're religious. He doesn't care. As long as you never put your complete confidence in Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God that comes through faith. He doesn't care. You can be religious all day long. And you can work really hard at keeping the law of God. He's cool with that. Keep trusting in your flesh. Keep building up that self-confidence. Keep saying, look what I've done. That's cool. That's fine. Just stay over there and keep encouraging more people to do that as a way to be saved, as a way to enter into that righteous kingdom. I'm good with that. Because you're still lost. So two points here simply this one is for you because i don't know all of you and even those i know i can't see into your heart but for you who are still attempting to achieve salvation through your good works through your ability to keep god's perfect law here's what i simply say to you surrender You are outmanned and outgunned. Jesus Christ is the only one that can save us from ourselves. He's it. Because He's the only righteous one. He's the only one that went and bore the wrath of God for our sins. And it is His righteousness that we take to ourselves through faith that we claim before God. Not my own. I don't have any. I don't have any. And the second is, for those Christians who we tend to fall back into this false thinking. So maybe we've come to the point of surrender. God, I can't do this. I surrender. And then we're like, we're saved and it's glorious and we're trusting in Him. And then somewhere along the way, we start to think, yeah, but maybe I'll... uh, Spruce myself up a little bit here and I'll help myself out. And, and, it, and we start to think it is about us and about what we do. Or even worse yet, we begin to tell people that this is how you get to God. Keep the law. 
In his book, The Cross-Centered Life, which I hand out to all who become members, looking forward to a few more people becoming members so they can get the book and read it, C.J. Mahaney gives a simple definition of legalism that I really like. And he says this, Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. He goes on to say, Schreiner writes that legalism has its origins in self-worship. If people are justified through their obedience to the law, then they merit praise, honor, and glory. Legalism, in other words, means the glory goes to people rather than God. And you know what, beloved? We are glory hogs. We want the glory. And God says, I'm not going to give you the glory. You're going to come into my kingdom as a dependent, poor, helpless child in need, in want. Receiving with open hands. That's the only way you're going to get in. And in my kingdom, I will be the only one who gets the glory. And if you, in your Christian life, do anything that's worthy of praise, you'll have to turn that praise back to me. Because it was only because I was working through you and in you. And that is why Paul says, I am what I am. And Paul was a mighty man of God. But he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Nothing else. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the great salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. And Father, I would pray that somehow, through just the words that were spoken this morning, Father, that people, through Your Spirit, would be convicted would feel the weight of the truth of, of some of these things that we have said and, and seen in Your Word this morning, Father, that if we are retaining any confidence or hope in our flesh, in our ability to somehow satisfy You or to make ourselves right before You, that we would just abandon that And that we would find ourselves in the arms of Jesus as completely dependent children. And that we would not try getting out. That we would not say, Jesus, you've held me long enough. But now I'm a big boy. I'll do it on my own. But that we would remain in the arms of our Savior. Fully dependent upon His grace. Not only to save us, but to change us into the people that we need to be. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.